0: Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2017 AWP conference in Washington, D.C. The recording features Jared Santec, Diane Zinna, Kim Patton, Andy Davis, Jessica Flynn, and Taylor Craig. You will now hear Jared Santec provide introduction.
1: Good morning, everyone. How are you doing? I'm Jared Santek. I am uh, the representative of Writers' Conferences and Centers on the board of AWP. And with me is Diane Zena, uh, membership director at AWP. We are happy to be here to, uh, with this panel, Doing Good Better. Uh, we work very closely with nonprofit literary organizations around the country. And so we were thrilled to see this panel on the schedule. And when the original facilitator had a conflict and couldn't make it, we were very happy to be able to step in and help moderate this panel. Given the fact that we are in D.C., where so many organizations that help nonprofits do their work well are located, we have this unique opportunity to share the expertise of what they have to offer with anyone who is involved in nonprofit organizations, whether it's a writing center, an independent press, or publisher, or any variety of nonprofit organizations. Today, we are very happy to have with us Kim Patton, Director of Foundation Center Northeast, Taylor Craig, from uh, National Arts Strategies, Jessica Flynn from the National Endowment for the Arts, and Andy Davis from BoardSource. So they are each going to tell you a little bit about the uh, work that they do in helping nonprofits, and then Diane has some questions for each of them, and then we will open it up to your questions. So with that, we would like to get started, and uh, I didn't warn the panelists about what order we were going in because I had no idea what order we were going in. So, um, if if we could just start working from my right to left, yeah. and you can, stay seated, so. Oh, okay. Stay
2: okay. Can you all hear me? All right. So, hello. As Jared said, my name is Taylor, and I am with National Art Strategies. So. At the most basic and simplest level, NAS is a facilitator and a connector, which I know is very broad. Um, But we work uh, with the entirety of the arts and culture ecosystem, uh, from grassroots projects to large and longstanding institutions. We do this by providing educational programs that um, encourage people to explore possibilities, lead change, I think that's the biggest factor, and um, create a community of practice and support, so really finding other people that they can um, work with long term. And we do this in three ways, which is through in-person programs, via our website, which has um, uh, case studies or tools you can download, and also digital learning in one-on-one and group forums, and then also through massively open online courses. So we currently have three that are open, um, available for free and on demand on platforms like Coursera and edX. Um, I think for me the most important thing that we do is really about the people and the people that we bring together in the room so we are um, take a lot of care in really ensuring that we have an artistic discipline diversity and geography diversity in our groups and that's really important to us uh, we believe that you know, having that like heterogeneous type of views in the room really challenges perspectives and, and broadens views so to, to be really short, you know, what we aim to do is, um, you know, facilitate, com- or I think first bring the right people together in the room and then facilitate conversations that um, push boundaries and then encourage people to affect the change that they really want to see. So I thought instead of just um, listing all of the things that we do and the different courses that are on Coursera and things like that, I could talk a little bit about um, some ways that literary organizations or people working in the literary sphere are, are involved currently in two of the programs that I work the closest with. Um, so the first is um, the chief executive program something we've been running since 2011. And it's for people who are executive directors, artistic directors, or CEOs of arts organizations around the world. And um, it's a group of 50 leaders, and they um, learn first from each other for over a year and a half. That's the most important, that they're learning from each other. And then second, alongside a tailored curriculum from business schools across the US. So this year, we worked with um, Harvard Business School and also Ross's um, Michigan's Ross School of Business. And um, I'm really proud to say that we have folks in the program this year from organizations like the National Book Foundation, um, Seattle Arts and Lectures, the Loft Literary Center, um, and you know alumni from the program include people like uh, who um, Youth Speaks and Coffee House Press, and also libraries around the nation, uh, Palo Alto and Chattanooga. Um, and I think what's really amazing is this is people in the literary sphere bringing their experience and and sharing that with people who are running museums or symphonies or community art spaces or film organizations. So it's about that cross disciplinary learning and sharing. Um, so that's just a little bit about that program. And then to go in a totally different direction, I thought I would talk about then CEOs. I thought I would talk about another program we run called Creative Community Fellows. Um, which for lack of a better term and purposes of brevity serves cultural entrepreneurs. So these are people who um, are starting, piloting, or scaling a, a venture, so to speak. Um, they're not typically involved or attached to an organization as an employee or they're starting their own organization. So they're sort of in that like fiscal sponsorship um, phase or putting in the papers for 501c3. And, um, And people working in the literary sphere there are, um, for example, Sarah Gonzalez, who is a spoken word artist in Tucson, Arizona, and she founded the Tucson Youth Poetry Slam that uses uh, poetry as a tool for advocacy against anti-immigrant and racist policies in Arizona. And then another really cool example is Steph Kent, who is a um, self-proclaimed bibliophile, I'll say, living in New York City. And... um, her she started this project called Call Me Ishmael and it, it it began as a phone number that people could call and leave messages about uh their favorite books or a book they read and what that meant to them and that's really what she wanted at first like to collect stories of that but I think it, or I don't think it, did grow into so much more than that. Um, and she, she now has a website, callmeishmail.com. You should check it out. And weekly, she releases um, videos of these recordings that people have left. But you know, the stories are much more than just uh, people saying, "I like this book because why?" As you all know, when you read a piece of literature, it can speak to your um, bones, really. So a lot of these are really deep and personal stories that are now shared. Um, for example, there's one of. Uh, you know, like a lifelong reader who talks about how the little prince um, helped them get through the death of a friend. Um, and, or there's one of a young girl who talks about how Cornelia and the Somerset sisters like transported her out of middle school and made her feel confident. So it, it's really moving. And on top of this, Steph has partnered with... Um, Bookstores, libraries, museums—some of you might be, work with her. I have no idea—and um, places around around the U.S. When, where she installs uh, this thing called the Call Me Ishmael phone. It's an old rotary-style phone that comes preloaded with recordings, and, and the place that gets it can curate that, so it can be on a theme, or there are bookstores that, you know, maybe put their staff picks recorded on there, or libraries that have community. Um, curated uh, stories put on there. And then the public, when they in- come in, can interact with this and, and kind of listen to the stories. Um, so it's quite amazing. And I know, like, these people are clearly awesome. And you're wondering a little bit about, like, so what do we do at NAS? You know, because <laughs> these are people running uh, organizations or starting these incredible ventures. Um, and what we really do is we support them so that they can continue to do this work in the field. Um, and that's by giving them tools that might help them rethink like why they're doing a certain thing a certain way or how to partner with a certain person um, or how to raise money um, or how to start a board. Um, So, And then also, I think most importantly is just um, creating a community of practice for them with uh, people who are working in the art space in similar and different forms so that they have people that they can reach out to uh, for years. So I'll stop there, but That's a little bit about what we do.
3: Hi, everybody. My name is Kim Patton, and I'm here from the Foundation Center. I'm glad Taylor looked at me when she said, help you find money. (laughs) Because that's what we help people do, find money. Um, We have... Four regional offices, maybe five, I always lose count, but in D.C., New York, San Francisco, Atlanta, and Cleveland. I head up the D.C. and the New York office. Um, most of it, we have a resource center um, where people can come and do training, and they can also use our database, um, which is what most people come to us to use. It's called Foundation Directory Online. Does anybody know about it? Okay. Cool. So it's the largest, most comprehensive database in the world. It has over um, 3 million grants in there. So you can look at organizations like yours to see who's funding them. I like to do it that way, personally. (laughs) Right, I hear some heads nodding. And also you can do sources... Like um, based on the issue area, your population that you're serving and addressing, your geographic region, it could be national, it could be international, it can be um, regional, it could be local. So you can put all that in our database and do a customized search on where you can find funders, private funders. Who are interested in what it is that you're doing, and we make it very simple and easy. We give you their website, their contact information, their application guidelines, their deadlines, everything you want to know in a one-stop shop kind of thing. Our website, we have two, foundationcenter.org, and also grantspace.org It's the word grant and the word space. Together with no space in the, in the middle, <laughs> so grantspace.org. That's my favorite, though. I like grantspace.org a little better than foundationcenter.org because it's easy to see where our trainings are, where our skill development section is. So, um, if you go there and try to do use our database online, you can't <laughs> because. It is a subscription-based service to use online. If you want to use it anytime, anywhere, you have to have a subscription. But don't let that don't let that discourage you, because you can come to any of the regional offices um, that I mentioned, or we have what's called Funding Information Network partners, which are basically libraries all over. The United States, we have over 450 of them. And you can go into those libraries and use the database for free. That's what I like. And you can save all the information, email it to yourself. So you don't have to have a subscription at all if you go to one of those locations. So I know the next question is, where are those locations? (laughs) So just go to Grantspace.org. That's why I love it. And right on the home page, there'll be a little block box pretty big box that says find us and then you literally just type in your zip code because i know you're here from all over the country and it'll show you where there's one close to you so i I bet you there's one in your backyard that you just didn't even know um existed so all you have to do is go in there if it's a library or whatever and just say we're looking for you don't even have to remember the name of it just say we're looking for that thing where you find grants (laughs) (laughs) Because <laughs> I know a lot of you be like, now, what, what was it called again? They'll, they'll know exactly what you're talking about, and they'll send you over there so you can use the database that way. So that's mostly what we do. We also have a lot of webinars, online courses that are self-paced, recorded courses, most of which are free. So I definitely encourage you to go on there where you can look at how to write proposals Because once you get the people that you want to approach, which is so easy using our database, you got to (laughs) know how to approach them. So we have lots of stuff on proposal writing, developing a fundraising plan, um, corporate sponsorship, how to do that. So really, really good stuff on there. And it's all free, which is my favorite um, part of it. So thanks. This is great. I'm
4: taking Um, My name is Jessica Flynn. I'm a literature specialist at the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, It's nice to see all of you here. We're sort of fresh at the start of AWP. Um, I'm pregnant, and I have to say my feet already hurt just thinking about the next few days. Um, But I'm looking forward to it as always. So um, how many of you, out of curiosity, have applied to the NEA on behalf of an organization? Oh, good. A lot of you. Okay. Um, But there's a mix. Um, so the NEA, um, we're the federal agency that um, works to give all people across America the chance to participate in and experience the arts. Um, and we were established in Congress in 19, by Congress in 1965, so uh, we just had our 50-year anniversary. Um, what you may not know is we are the only funder to provide art support to every state, um, U.S. territory, District of Columbia. Um, And what we're really aiming to do is to elevate and sustain creativity across the country. Um, And we do this through things like our grant making, which you know about, um, through partnerships and research and and other initiatives. I will say, um, because we're a federal agency, I think some people approach us with some trepidation sometimes. Because when you think of the federal government, you think of like official people in suits and um, impenetrable Office buildings, but we um, <laughs> we are we are at the NEA because we're excited about the work you're doing, and we know how important it is. And um, you know, on the literature team, we're writers, and we get the work you're doing, and we're here for you. So, um, just to give you a sort of overview of the agency itself um, and the agency size and sort of the context. Um, in 2016, the NEA budget was 147.9 million dollars. Um, which represented just about 0.004% of the federal budget. Um, And 40% of the agency's grant-making budget goes directly to the states. So that means that the state arts agencies and state arts councils are are distributing those funds. And then the other 60% um, of our grant-making budget goes to the organizations and individuals who are applying to the NEA. Um, So that would be where you would come in. Um, And we support a really wide range of artistic disciplines at the NEA. Everything from dance, design, folk arts, um, opera, theater, um, there's so many more. Literature, of course. Um, So in terms of what we do in the literature side of things, um, we really work to support the whole literary ecosystem. And we do this um, through a number of programs and initiatives. You may know about our creative writing fellowships to individuals. Um, We also offer translation fellowships to individuals to bring world literature into English and to American audiences. Um, We have two two program initiatives. One is called Poetry Out Loud, which is a national um, poetry recitation competition for high school students. Um, And we have a program called the Big Read, which supports community reading programs that are um, centered around one book from our Big Read library. And then I think where I'm gonna spend the most time um, talking to you, what I'm gonna spend the most time talking to you about um, is our artworks grant opportunity because that's the um, grant opportunity that's for for organizations. So in literature, we support two general types of um, projects. The first is literary publishing projects. So those are things like um, the publication and distribution of books and journals and magazines, um, paying those writers who are the authors and contributors, um, promoting the books and the journals. Also, um, maybe if you're a publisher, you want to digitize your backlist or you're doing some other um, electronic endeavor. That could all be supported under our literary publishing deadline. Um, and then our other sort of main um, category for support is called audience and professional development. And those are projects like um, residencies and reading series and festivals, um, services to writers, um, conferences and workshops that promote uh, professional and artistic development, um, technical support um, for literary organizations. Uh, So that's all in in our audience development area. And um, organizations can only apply once per year, so you have to pick one or the other when you're applying. Um, Typically, our literary publishing deadline is in February and our audience development deadline is in, um, in July. So a few other things to, to mention. Uh, to, in order for an organization to apply, it has to be a 501C3 nonprofit, and it has to have at least three years of programming under its belt. So you have to have a track record that you can um, show our panel. Um, our grants range from 10 to 100,000 in this artworks opportunity. I would say typically in literature, they range, like the average is probably about 10 to 30 in terms of what folks get. Um, our review process, so when you submit an application for a review, uh, it goes to a panel that changes every year, and it's made up of, um, of a, a group of experts from across the country, and they assess your application in two general ways. So they look at the artistic excellence of the application and the artistic merit. Artistic excellence is really the, um, the, the panels looking at the literary content that you're proposing and the quality of that. Um, And then artistic merit is kind of everything else in the application, so it's um, what's the, you know, how well poised is the organization to carry out the project? Um, You know, who are you serving, and what will the impact be? All of that kind of stuff. So I think I will stop there for now. I talked a lot. (laughs) Awesome.
5: I left my, my notes in my bag down there, um, and, uh, and she brought paper, and she's taking notes because there's so many uh, interesting and fascinating people up here. So, uh, Jessica, if you I'm don't sure. – yeah, thank you very much. Uh, my name is Andy Davis. I am the director of education at BoardSource. I guess let me start out by asking, how many of you serve on a nonprofit board of directors? Wow, that's impressive. And how many of you are chief executives? yeah so i I'll start just by telling you a tiny bit a tiny story about myself um because I like to make it about myself sometimes um <laughs>
1: uh,
5: I grew up in a small town in Eastern North Carolina, and my father was the um executive director of the homeless shelter in the town that I lived in and I always thought uh growing up that that was you know a a big deal it is a big deal, but I you know in my uh, nine or ten or eleven year old head i you know <laughs> he was the boss of a homeless shelter it doesn 't get more uh, important than that i, I thought, and i 'll never forget uh, my very first time hearing the words "board of directors" or a board um, and i i 'm willing to bet most people don 't that was not a formative moment in their life, but we would go to um, my grandmother 's house every Sunday. Uh, for lunch after church um, Like a, a lot of southern families She didn't live far from us And we would go over there literally every single Sunday And she was kind of an, an older fashioned lady It was very important to her that we were there Every single Sunday And one Sunday we couldn't Because my father had a board meeting he had to attend And I remember her saying to him what does a board do anyway? And he said in a very, uh, you know, in a way that I could understand it as as a preteen and my grandmother could, could understand it in her 70s. He explained what a board was. Uh, essentially is saying, well, they're the only boss I have and, and I, you know, I'm going to have to miss fried chicken this week. So, um, and, and after that, he and I had more conversations about what a board did. He, he worked in that job for about seven years before he got burned out. Uh, we moved uh, – actually, he went to seminary in, in Kentucky. Um, felt like his calling was to have a congregation. Uh, after he graduated from seminary, he ended up going right back to the exact same organization in North Carolina. Felt like he had a calling to come back there. Didn't really understand it. Um, one night this, – this is a small town in North Carolina. One night um, – The shelter had a a woman and her daughter come in. It was not a safe place for children and only a few beds in a separate room for females in the shelter. And they had to turn uh, the mother and daughter away. Um, And two days later, the mother and daughter were found drowned in the river that came through our town. And he figured out his calling was to open a women and children shelter. And, And that's what he did. Long story short, six or seven years later, burned out again. And by this time, I'm in college or maybe even grad school by this time, and we're having a conversation about what happened that he got burned out. And really then started to talk about boards and boards of directors and how a board is the only real partner a chief executive has. And he always felt like he was doing all of the heavy lifting for himself. Everywhere he went, the fundraising aspects, the the management aspects, which you know are normally a chief executive's, but everything he did, he felt like he was um, uh, alone and he didn 't have a, a partner, and that caused the burnout mm-hmm. and so that really uh, struck a chord with me because I understood for myself anyway that i wouldn 't be great uh, on kind of a micro level scale dealing with these same issues every day. I wanted to work on a macro-level scale, and boards seemed to be an interesting uh, way to do that, or at least something that I was interested in. It was in grad school. They sent me to this uh, this, this training. I trained the trainer for an or- from an organization called BoardSource, and, and I just thought immediately when I was there, I was like, these people get it. They understand what a board of directors and a chief executive, how that partnership can create lasting and impactful change, not just for an organization, but for an entire community. Um, and so when I graduated, uh, I applied for one job. Uh, it was uh, called a junior curriculum developer, junior staff associate or something with a terrible mm-hmm. title. And, and, and I applied for it because that was the only place I wanted to work. And here we are nine years later, and I'm still with Board Source. And I'm proud to say we're the largest publisher of nonprofit uh, governance materials in the world. Uh, we're the only national organization – uh, that focuses solely on nonprofit uh, governance and the relationship between the chief executive and and the board of directors and what we do is we have really three basic arms we have a membership arms a membership arm that uh, provides materials, uh, white papers, topic papers to our members we also have our publishing arm, and we have our consulting and training arm and our education arm provides uh, over thirty webinars free per year to our members. Uh, we also have in person um, uh, trainings all over the country. We host our uh, annual leadership forum this year. It's in Seattle. Would love for you to, all to come. Uh, but what we do on a very, very basic level, when I uh, explain it to my relatives at home who have no clue what I'm talking about, uh, when I say I live in Washington, D.C., I work on governance, they want to talk about Trump. That's not kind of, uh, you know, uh, the kind of governance I'm working on. So really the way I explain it is we teach people how to serve on boards of directors. And we do that every which way you can imagine, from the smallest startup organizations with a $1,000 budget uh, to we're working right now on a five-year project with all of the Smithsonian boards. So um, check us out, boardsource.org. And if you have any questions, we're always here to help uh, work with you and help your board of directors become more impactful and also to try to help you build a better board.
0: Thank you to this incredible panel I'm so glad all of you are here And all of you too Um, Again, I'm Diane Zinn And I'm the membership director for AWP And one of my um, happy duties Is to direct the Writers' Converses and Centers group So do we have WCNC members in the room? Yes, thank you. Um, This is the group that manages conferences, centers, festivals, retreats, and residencies, and provides benefits to them and helps connect them with one another. Um, So this panel today is really important to to those of you who do this kind of work, Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about some opportunities, how you can get involved in that at the end, Um, but what we did when we found out about this panel is that we solicited some questions from our member organizations, Um, and I thought I'd pose some of those to the panel today, Um, and then we'll open it up to questions from you all, okay? Um, But one question that I got from our group was, um, what is the most innovative Action that you have seen a nonprofit take in the past year. I'll just open it up to anyone who wants to answer that. I,
5: I, so I saw these questions and I was reading them. Jared had sent a, an email saying these might be questions we talk about, and this one was really difficult for me. And I, and I think it's. Um, um, it says a lot about the sector, especially uh, where I work when we talk about fundraising or governance, that um, I, I think I s- we see a lot of innovative things, but we're not putting those into practice across the sector. But, but when I really started thinking about it, and I hate to, to toot our own horn at BoardSource, uh, we've, we put out, a, a, I want to call it a research paper because it's not that rigorous, but we put out our own framework a few weeks ago about measuring fundraising effectiveness. Um, I think one thing uh, that our country and, and folks who donate to nonprofits have gotten way too caught up in is overhead and uh, the cost of overhead for a nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And, and we automatically think, well, if it's not between 12 and 15%, then this organization not doing good work. Um, and I think that our nonprofit chief executives and board members have gotten stuck into a place where they're constantly trying to explain away where costs go. And we forget about, especially, you know, I'm a firm believer that as 501c3s, we're beholden to the public trust. And by that, we have to do the best amount of good we can with the dollars or the tax uh, uh, statuses that were given by the federal government. And part of that is making sure that we're investing in the right people, we're investing in the right strategies, and we're putting money where we can to get a return on that investment. So 12 to 15% is an outdated um, uh, number that I think is not relevant to organizations. For some, it could be a perfect number. For others, it's not. So BoardSource has put out a, a tool recently called Measuring Fundraising Effectiveness, and it basically just helps board members talk about how they fundraise, where the cost of fundraising dollars go, and why that cost is important uh, for uh, the, the turnaround of the organization. So let's say you spend $1,000 on a, on a direct mail campaign, but you only receive $800 in. Well, we're not talking about the amount of information that you've gotten back, the type of donors that you've cultivated to be long-term donors for your organization. Um, so I think our tool measuring fundraising effectiveness and just the way we're, we're helping board members explain where a nonprofit's dollars go is, is, is pretty innovative and helpful. Thank you.
2: Some... Um, okay, so... Innovative is sort of a tricky word, but I—I um, I first want to say that I think that a lot of organizations um, in the past year have taken a lot of really radical stances um, that I would that I applaud and would call innovative, um, including, you know, people putting. Like Black Lives Matter as a back of their Twitter background, I mean that 's amazing, and uh like what the MoMA just did, which took down its exhibit and put up um you know all artists from the seven countries that are on this travel ban, you know, so that 's amazing, and I personally haven 't seen actions like that in a long time, but on a on a more like what can we do as organizations um, I think well, we can do that, but um a more tactical thing is uh an organization called Fractured Atlas. I don't know if you guys are familiar with them, um, but they are a nonprofit, but they're a tech company, and they support artists um, through like fiscal sponsorship, crowdfunding, finding space, and that sort of thing. Um, so, sort of like the support for artists getting an organization off the ground or doing a project. Um, but they're pretty radical in or forward-thinking in a lot of their internal policies. So, you know, they have like unlimited vacation. Seventy-five percent of their staff works. Um, from home two days a week and things like that if you think about like HR policies but one thing they did really cool in um, the fall of last year was publish a website called How We Work I don't know the exact address but if you google like How We Work in Fractured Atlas you'll probably find it and it's basically all of the information that you would receive if you were a new employee at Fractured Atlas so like all of those policies are there and why they do them, and like including like summer or winter bonuses, and like R and D policies, and things like that. And I find that fascinating. And they're just totally open with the transparent fact because they believe, you know, we work in this sector, and we want other people to do good, better. And um, this is how we do it. So, what can you learn from it? So, I would check it out.
3: I would say that um, a lot of nonprofits are doing some really interesting things with the political climate. Whether you're for it or against it, it's an opportunity to take a stand. And a lot of people are using that platform to really create some really interesting ways to raise money um, through crowdfunding, you know, special events, things like that, that revolve around a specific political issue. I know that, you know, from big organizations to small organizations, they're doing that. Um, I think that the ACLU... And uh, Greenpeace and organizations like that have raised a phenomenal amount of money, <laughs> like probably record numbers of <laughs> of dollars, um, just based on stuff that's going on in the news and the political uh, climate. So I think people more than ever now want to get involved and be involved, and a lot of social media sites are encouraging, you know. Involvement and a lot of times that does involve nonprofit organizations that are doing great things uh, in the community. So I think a lot of people are doing innovative things with with that kind of stuff.
4: Um, yeah, I think literary organizations are um, they're always innovating, um, really out of necessity because um, the literary landscape is always changing so quickly, and um, like an example of that is in publishing. So it's hard to come up with one example, but I think uh, like finding a novel way to connect with an audience, or or maybe finding a a fresh way to promote a book, can be just as innovative sometimes as doing something as overtly innovative as developing a new technology or platform or something like that. we also see. I mean, I think we're also seeing a lot of innovative partnerships happening in the literary field. An example of that um, is the Poetry Coalition, which is a, you know a lot of poetry organizations coming together around the common goals they share for promoting poetry and realizing there's power in numbers and um, and there's a lot to be to be shared there. So I think that's terrific. And I will also say that at the NEA, in terms of what we support, we're always interested in the um, innovations like the technology, but we're also interested in supporting the really excellent existing work, core work that um, literary orgs are doing, so the publications that you're putting out and promoting. So um, we appreciate you know all, that whole spectrum.
0: All right, and on the flip side, um, a very popular question was, what is um, the most common mistake that you see nonprofits, particularly new nonprofits, making? I can start. Um, So
4: I I think um, some of the the key things I would say as a funder is um, if you're applying for a grant, um, first of all, call us before you apply because especially if you haven't applied before, I can help you... I can help talk through your project and make sure it fits within, a, you know, what we support and that it'll be competitive in our pool. It's a big outlay of work when you um, approach an NEA grant. So, you know, we want to make sure that um, it's a good use of your time. And also, just introduce yourself because we want to know what you're up to. And it's um, it's good to stay in touch and let us know what you're working on either way. Um, so, first of all, so call. So don't not call. <laughs> um, and at the end of our application process, what some folks may not know or what they may not take may not take advantage of is the fact that we um, offer panel feedback. So whether or not you're funded, you can call and request um, feedback and I can go over it with you. And it's just, I think, sometimes very helpful to hear what a panel of experts thought about your proposal. And it might include, um, you know, it may, highlight strengths and weaknesses that you knew were there it might highlight something that you didn't know but it's it's just an opportunity and we really see it as a service to the field that we can give you that feedback so um don't make the mistake of not taking advantage of that
3: i think um what i see is people not uh diversifying their funding streams a lot um you know, we have the NEA up here, which is public support. I represent private foundations, you know, but you can't live on grants alone. You can't, just can't do it, especially nowadays. It's just much more competitive than it used to be. And the biggest source of funding for nonprofits in the U.S. by far are individuals, period. I mean, they, they make up like 80% of the dollars come from individuals. So I think that it's a mistake not to really look at individuals to support your work. And, you know, I don't even mean rich people. A lot of people think that's what I mean, but I don't because rich people, besides having way more money than we have, they have foundations. So typically we're not even talking about rich people. We're talking about just the basic individual person that you can connect to their values, their beliefs, things that they care about and it's easier to approach them because you don't have deadlines and you don't have proposals and you don't have requests for proposals and all that stuff. So really thinking about individuals. And that's why I am a big fan of crowdfunding because of that um, or having an online donation button on your website. Because people tend to give very spontaneously based on, you know, what they're connecting to at the moment. And, you know, if you make it easy for them to do that, I think, you know, that's a good approach. Thank
2: you. Um, okay. So what stands out to me in this question is the new nonprofits part. Um, because, like I mentioned in the fellows program, we work a lot with people who are in that, like, startup phase. Um, and for any of you who are founders or anything, you can probably relate to this. But I think one of the biggest... Mistakes. <laughs> I don't want to like harp on it like that, but yeah, that I see made is um, people not accounting for their time um, and what that's worth. And um, I I recognize though that you know a lot of this is passion projects, and you can't you you're working another job, a full time job, while you're creating this thing, um, and and you can't always afford to pay yourself a or you you truly can't afford to pay yourself a livable wage right away usually. So, but I think it's important to know what time you are putting into it and what that is worth and then when you can start to incrementally add that in and where to ask for it um, and make it clear to people uh, when you're partnering or when you're um, asking for money what that's going to take for you to do.
5: Yeah, I think for me, um, I think it's about uh, a different kind of, uh, she was talking about diversifying funding streams. uh, for, For When I think about the biggest... Mistake that especially new nonprofits make. It's about uh, diversity on their boards of directors um, in terms of, especially on a brand new board, uh, in terms of moving outside the sphere of the founder or the chief executive who sets up that board with uh, friends or family, people that uh, they know um, and for one reason or another, uh, they they think that they're going to be a good fit on this board. And really, what they end up being is kind of rubber stamping uh, rubber stamps for the executive director. And there's becomes no diversity of thought or opinion uh, in a boardroom. And it's often uh, they they react with blinders uh, and and aren't able to see pitfalls or uh, you know tricky situations that may be coming around the bend because they get so excited or passionate about a founder uh, a founder's vision for the organization. So. Things just become whatever the founder wants them to do, and they move forward. Founders are are wonderful, you know, great people with great visions. But you always have to have that person on the board that's willing to push back and say, "Let's take a step here. Let's take a second here, and, and think about this." And we recommend that through you know boards that are that have been around for 150 years. If you if you see yourself becoming complacent and too many people if there's not a a robust discussion, conversation even arguments in your boardroom then you're doing it wrong Um, I'll often tell um, I'll often tell boards uh, you know, maybe even before a board meeting, pull a board member aside and say, hey, you're going to be the devil's advocate today, um, and, and we're not going to tell anybody else, but every time uh, a, you know, we, we talk about something or a point comes up, if we're talking about strategy or having a generative conversation, I want you to take kind of the opposite approach, and it just breathes uh, new life in, in, into a, a board discussion. Um, And for older boards, it's also about diversity. It becomes an old boys club. We're getting ready to put out uh, our research. We call it the Leading with Intent uh, uh, we do research about through about 5,000 board chairs and chief executives, and we've seen um, just traditional forms of diversity, uh, mm-hmm. race and gender diversity in the United States on boards of directors have stayed the same since we started doing this survey for the first time in 1993. So over 24 years uh, we've seen relatively the same amount of African Americans who sit on boards. It's around 13%. Um, uh, and we uh, White people on boards still make up about 85%. So I mean, we, those numbers just aren't changing. And when we talk to people about it, and I want to do more rigorous research, um, it becomes a, a, a conversation of inclusivity. Um, we're, we're striving for more diverse boards, but when we get diversity on our boards, um, they're not part of the conversations, the real conversations that are going on um, uh, outside the boardroom. My boss is going to publish a paper, she keeps talking about, called The Boardroom, The Bathroom and The Barroom, and the different conversations that happen in each one of those places. You always have a certain conversation that happens around the boardroom, but when you take a break and go to the bathroom, you'll, you know, especially as a consultant, as an outsider, you hear people start saying, well, so-and-so didn't bring up this or so-and-so, you know, forgot to say whatever. And in the barroom, that's when the gloves really come off, and that's where the decisions are made. (laughs) So building in inclusivity into board uh, conversations when we talk about board building and at the beginning making sure that uh, a founder or a chief executive has a check on their power I think are two big uh, big mistakes that nonprofits make in in areas we can improve.
0: Thank you. AWP had a board meeting yesterday. <laughs>
5: <How'd it go? laughs> I'm just thinking
0: through all these things. <laughs> um, I've got one more question I want to pose, and then I thought I'd open it up to all of you. Are there questions already out there? Can I see a show of hands. Yeah, I've got a few more in my back pocket if we need to fill the, the hour, but I'm going to open it up after this last question. I love this question. Um, it came to Jared from a colleague, um, and his colleague said to him every whisper of thanks. Comes with a roar to do more, indicating her feeling that neither she nor her organization can ever do enough. Right? Um, what advice do you have for preventing nonprofit burnout and retaining joy in the workplace?
3: <laughs> I'll take it. Um, I would say that number one, you just can't be all things to everybody. I mean, you just have to say, you know, here's what we do, here's what we do well, and we're going to stick to that, and we're not going to take on too much. You know, Foundation Center's been around for 50 years, and people ask us to do a lot of things from around the world, and we are very particular about sticking really close to our mission and what we do well and not trying to do too much. The other thing I really want to um, talk about is networking, like seriously, like come getting out of the office. Just I know everybody feels like I have so much to do that I can't even take lunch most days, but I think that's a mistake. You know, I think you should take your lunch. I think you should come to events like this. I think you should... Because um, a lot of ideas happen here, not just what's going on up here, but all the conversations that go along outside of what you're doing in these sessions, I think are very important. And I've seen that happen a lot, like in my trainings and stuff. We, at first, thought webinars were just going to take off and really just put our in-person classes to shame. And to be honest, the reverse of it has been true, honestly. The webinars are doing okay, but people actually like to come out to the training because, one, you get, you know, the q and is fabulous, plus you get to, you know, talk afterwards, but a lot of networking, a lot of collaboration happens after the class. You know, that's when you really meet people. So I say get out your office, you know, make time to do other things that will bring the joy and fulfillment back to what you do personally like i still teach a lot of classes she'll tell you i do and a lot of people say you're teaching classes you're regional director you're teaching a free class and that's the joy of my day a lot of times (laughs) is that i get in things like this where i get to get out of my office and not do all the administrative stuff i started off as a training coordinator and now i'm the regional director, but the training part was what I liked the most. So I just want to say that no matter how far I get away from that, I still like to keep my foot in that arena because that's where I get the most fulfillment and the most joy. So try to, you know, with your mission, try to stay really connected to the people you serve and um, the people, your colleagues and peers.
0: And the things that give you joy because... I took her class at the Foundation Center. It was a proposal writing boot camp, three days. And you could just tell that she loved to be doing that, right? And you had a million other things that you could be doing. Yeah. Um, but it was an incredible course. I put together a killer proposal, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, but it was, and then afterward, the networking aspect of it, I stayed in touch with so many of the people who were in that room and from other organizations and um, helped me put my mission into a new perspective. Yeah.
3: Yeah. 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 Very good. Thanks.
5: I mean, I think I agree with everything that was just said. My biggest thing about avoiding burnout, and I think about this a lot, um, is that most organizations don't spend enough time celebrating their wins. Um, celebrating is just as important part, to me anyway, it's just about any other step in the process. And when you don't give yourself a time or an opportunity to pat yourself on the back and say, hey, we did a, we did a pretty darn good job here, um, you forget about those wins. And no matter what good you see yourself or your organization doing in your community, um, if you don't give yourself that opportunity to to reflect back on the hard work that you put into it, um, it's going to burn you out before the next time. We have an organizational culture team at at our organization that that I serve on, and we try to just – come up with innovative ways to celebrate wins, uh, but also just have fun together as an organization. And and I know that, you know, everybody works in different size organizations. We only have about 29, 30 folks in our office. But uh, last Thursday and every month, we have what we call um, Thabio, Thursday afternoon beer in office. And we, you know, we just we, we take time just to have a drink or, or two or you know, several more or, or not, but, to you know, eat some good food and just, you know, um, for lack of a better word, fellowship together. Last uh, month uh, I brought in a bunch of board games and we just all sat around and played categories and Jenga for the, you know, for an hour. And sometimes, you know, everybody can leave at 5 o'clock, but we're there until 630 or 7 o'clock at night sometimes just trying to enjoy being around each other. You know, we're still a diverse group of individuals and we probably wouldn't all choose to hang out together on a Friday or Saturday night. But when you give us the opportunity to share in successes with one another, it goes a long way to Monday morning not being so painful and not wanting to get out of bed because you get to go not only see your colleagues and do great work, but you get to see your friends.
4: I love that advice, celebrating wins. That's great. Um, Yeah, I think in in the literature field, we're all, we're a part of it because we love poetry or, or nonfiction or fantasy or whatever, and it's just... Um, sometimes you have to come back to that and you have to think about the people you're serving. And, um, I think that that can help a lot. Um, so yeah. And I also think many, you know, our colleagues are often, we have such similar interests, um, you know, with our colleagues and just take, to take advantage of that happy hour. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, and it's, you know, also if you feel overwhelmed by something or like you can't do enough, it's like, you know, read a few pages, like sometimes we'll read, um, a few pages from like a fellowship application a poetry application or you know and it's like it's uh, that's always a transporting thing so
0: yeah
2: so i second third fourth you know everything that has been said about celebration and um especially taking a lunch break i'm a firm believer (laughs) that like no one is going to die if you leave Mm -hmm. your desk like they're really not i mean if you sit behind a desk um You should just honor that time. You get paid for it, and it's good for your mind. I also think um, similarly, like, that's with vacation, too. Like, take some vacation days and respect that time and don't check your email. And then also respect your colleagues' time when they go. Don't just send them 50 emails because you know they're gone for a week. Like, who wants to come back to that? But um, one thing that's really cool about where I work at NES, I, like, I also love getting out of the bed and going to work in the morning because I love the people I work with. And I think that's part of the culture we've created, which is similar. We do take time to celebrate our wins outside of the office. Um, and um, we, like, all went and got manicures together one day. There's a lot of women. Okay, so, like, things like that, you know. And um, But one thing that really works, we're also really small, um, so we're only eight full-time people. And we all work in, like, a big blob of desks together so like I see someone right across from me like our CEO sits right in the middle too and um, for us it's really amazing not only for like cross collaboration of like talking about projects and hearing things and like that transparency but also I think it really brings about joy and fun and and, uh, staff bonding um, you know, like then we have conversations like yesterday we all laughed about like the video of Winona Ryder's faces at the SAG Awards or something. Like, you know, and everyone took a moment to like stop and enjoy that um, and or talk about the food that they're eating or something like that. So for us, that's a really that's created that type of environment has created a really magical space um, for us as a team. Um, so, yeah, thought I'd share that.
5: Mm-hmm. Also, that nice. I, just a thought when I interview people and I believe me, I get it. I want the best Folks That we possibly can have on our organization. But I know that my boss is probably going to, and I've already seen their resume, and my boss is going to ask the important questions around um, job roles and responsibilities. But a lot of times I think about culture fit. And when I interview folks, how are you going to be able to work with, you know, this team or in in this environment? Is this something that makes sense for you? Because if you're not happy here, and that's our ultimate goal, to make you happy. Because when you're happy, you're going to be a a, a more pleasant person to be around, around your colleagues. Your work product's going to be better. And folks around you are going to be happy to work with you. So I I think oftentimes we look for the person with the best resume, and we forget to ask those questions to figure out what kind of fit they're going to be in our culture.
1: Taylor, I love what you said and it reminded me of something that I heard in my other organization there, there's no such thing as a literary emergency so, again, thank you to all of our panelists they've given up their time on their work day thank and thanks to all of you
0: thank you for listening to the AWP podcast series, for other podcasts please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org